You're listening to the Be So Good podcast with Colin Pierce. Colin says you are 10 times better than you think. So why not be so good they can't ignore you? Here he is, Colin Pierce. This is another podcast in which I include a presentation from my successful CD series, Get to Number One in Sales and Stay There. When I started selling, I couldn't tell the difference between selling and bullying. If a prospect raised a question or told me they didn't want to buy, I thought my role was to talk them around. I confess I was pretty harsh, often using ridicule and put-downs to make them yield to my cajoling. Then someone kindly pointed out that that was a pretty jerky way to behave and there was a better way. After I listened and thought about it a lot, I decided to call it the Sash Mac formula and it has served me well over many years and kept me friends with a lot of prospects in the process. If you're not yet a member of the Colin Pierce Academy, I'm inviting you to consider it now. I'll take a moment to explain. If you go to colinpierceacademy.com, You can become a member for, as I often say, a ridiculously low monthly subscription. And there you'll get all the courses on offer. You'll get included in the community where you can relate to other people in the courses. And you'll get the twice monthly members only coaching calls. Please join us. I finished the last CD by saying if you use Pierce's Benef English and if you qualify people properly and if you ask questions and if you're really motivated, it's less likely that you'll ever have to face the problem of handling objections. I would say that if you get through your presentation and you still have a bunch of objections, you probably weren't talking to the right person or you were talking to somebody who wasn't qualified to buy your product. But let's just say that you're getting some objections during the process, I want to reassure you that objections are definitely part of the sales process. Every job's got its lumps. And one of the lumps of selling is that you have to face objections. Just like the lumps of a public speaker are that he's got to fly around the world, stay in five-star hotels and eat luxury fattening food all the time. Every job's got its lumps. And handling objections is one of them. The rest is cream cheese. Let's think about objections like this. It's a basic drive of human nature that people need a feeling of confidence to rationalise their feeling of purchase. Otherwise, you'll get people with serious buyer's remorse. I know about buyer's remorse. I tend to get it before I ever buy anything. The feeling of confidence they get must come from you, and it'll probably come from the way you speak in benefit-rich, customer-focused language and in the careful way you handle their objections. That will help them rationalise their feeling of purchase so that when they go to sign on the dotted line or go to nod or go to say, yes, OK, deliver me one, they'll feel good about it. Often after a sales seminar, somebody will come up to me or they'll stick their hand up in the middle and they'll say, hey, yes, Noel, what do you say when the customer hasn't got enough money? Or what do you say when the prospect's already got a program like yours? Or what do you say when the customer gets all your information and then says they're shopping around? I've got to admit it, those what-do-you-do-when kind of questions can scare the life out of you. I know when I was starting out in sales back in those advertising days, I was confronted by people asking me that side of question all the time, and I didn't know how to deal with them. But then as I grew up in sales, I noticed three really important facts. 
First of all, I couldn't get the experienced salespeople to tell me how to handle any of the objections they heard. You know why? They hadn't had any practice at them for a while and they didn't get any. They didn't know what the answers were because they didn't ever hear the questions. Objections don't seem to worry professional salespeople and I'd have to say that it doesn't bother me in the slightest these days. There's a difference between objections and real reasons for not buying. I think we have to establish that. There are real reasons why somebody won't buy, but that's different from common and or garden objections. And the other thing is that objections really do build your sale. If you handle them and look for them and expect them, they'll help you move to the next stage of your sales process and finally through to the close. On this CD, we're going to learn two formulae to make handling objections simple. I call them the SASHMAC formula, and the other is the WHAT-IF formula. If you want to make a note of them, we'll explain them in a moment. S-A-S-H-M-A-C, SASHMAC formula, and the other is the WHAT-IF, W-A-T-I-F. Now, I must say that I did invent the acronym SASHMAC, but it was taught to me by somebody a long time ago who talked about smiling and agreeing and showing more value. Well, I simply turned it into SASHMAC, smile, agree, show more advantages and close again. And the WHAT-IF formula, I guess that's been around for donkey's years and I forget who told it to me. It might have been one of my publishers. In fact, it was Wilson Main from Video Communicators, a real clever chap. Anyway, let's talk about these experienced salespeople. Experienced salespeople tend to know instinctively how to build in answers to the objections before they're ever raised. You get that? You might like to write it down. They know instinctively how to build in answers to the objections before they're ever raised. They might know what customers tend to say more often, and just quite off the lip as they're running through the presentation, they'll say, and of course, with this, the guarantee lasts three years and covers absolutely everything, but we'll come to that later. See, they just throw that in so that nobody has to ask later on, does it have a guarantee, mate? Next, experienced salespeople are less likely to raise silly side issues which are likely to turn into objections. Get that? They're less likely to raise silly side issues which are likely to turn into objections. You might find yourself making a sales presentation about a particular brand of microphone and you say, of course, you can blow the membrane out if you shout into them. That's why we suggest you hold it about nine inches away from your lips. You think you're being very clever by telling the person a bit of advice about how to hold the microphone, but you just raised a silly side issue about blown out membrane. So experienced salespeople don't raise silly side issues. And thirdly, experienced salespeople seem to think that objections are simply parts of a conversation which are a natural progression to the sale. I mentioned that already. Well, I reckon there are three kinds of objections. There are questions, of course. There are negative statements. And then there are outright rebuttals. Here's some from each category. This is what a question sounds like. You might call this an objection or a question. It just goes, well, we have the same problems as other people in sorting out who's responsible for what decisions when we deal with your company. They might say, how good are your response times to problems? You notice if somebody puts that with a touch of nasty in the voice, it could sound like, how good are your response times to problems? It sounds as like they're having a go at you. That's probably what frightens us. But it's just a question. Is it true that your company takes months to change a specified drawing where company XYZ only takes a couple of weeks? And that sounds like a real shot at us too, but it's just a question. And the last kind of question you might get is, are you capable of being a vendor who can anticipate our technology needs or do we always have to come to you and ask you if you've got any ideas? 
They're just asking for more information, you see. Some questions can put you on the spot. But accept the fact that they are a natural part of the process. Then there are negative statements. European suppliers still have the highest defect rates on that item, you know. I reckon be better off dealing with somebody who distributes for a North American supplier. Or, your engineers put in too many unimportant performance enhancements. We just want the bare commodity. Somebody might say, you know, if you don't get more competitive on price, you're going to be squeezed out of the market. There's a lot of new people coming in these days that want the business. Somebody might say, the way I figure it, you should be looking at our company and telling us what you can offer, not coming in here asking us what we want and then going away and building it or specifying it. Somebody might say in a negative statement, oh, mate, your competitors are way ahead of you. Company XYZ are planning 10 years further out than you are. When are you going to catch up? Now, that's a negative statement come question. But here's an outright rebuttal. And this is the only one that means that people will never do business with you. The rest are just questions and negative statements. They don't mean much. An outright rebuttal could sound like, your company's days are finished. We've got a new board policy of supporting only Australian suppliers. Guy might say, you know, I hate your company, I hate its size, I hate your people and I hate your track record. We'll never do business with your company as long as I'm president. Never. Just leave the building, will you, or I'll have you forcibly removed. Now, that's a pretty outright rebuttal, isn't it? Most objections are questions and negative statements. They're requests for more information. Some objections are genuine reasons for not buying. But you can never tell the difference unless you test them out. Here's something I've discovered. If a person is actually going to end up buying, they'll use an objection pattern where they keep changing the objection. Somebody who's a prospect with no genuine reason not to buy can't make up their mind why they don't want to buy, so they just keep on coming up with any reason that comes into their mind. For example, the first time you hear them speak, they might say, no, we, we just don't have any money for any new equipment at the moment. The next time you ask them to speak, they might say, well, we just wouldn't have time to install it, to tell you the truth. Or they might say in the third objection, your responses are pretty slow. I don't know whether you can respond with the drawings we need straight off. And then lastly, they might say, well, you know, we really are happy with our other supplier. See, that pattern goes objection A, objection B, objection C, objection D. Four objections. You would run back to the office and say to your sales manager, I couldn't sell him. He had more reasons than a dog's got fleas why he wouldn't buy our product. How do you get over those objections, you might say? Now, the non-buyer's objection pattern, I believe, is different. The person who's definitely not going to buy from you usually restates the same objection or question three or four times and makes it a little stronger each time. See, they are selling you on why they can't buy. They've made up their mind and they stick to the same story. They say, I just couldn't afford it. Next they say, really, we, we just don't have that kind of money. And thirdly, they'd say, well, yeah, my board would really frown on me for even presenting this to them. And fourthly, they'd say, Honestly, we'd be forced into liquidation if we made this kind of investment. See, that's the same pattern. It's A, 
restated as uppercase A, restated as uppercase bold A, restated as uppercase bold italics underlined A. It's the same objection over and over and over. So as a general rule, different objections mean the customer is more likely to buy. I wouldn't say they're guaranteed to, but they're more likely to buy. And the same objection restated means the customer won't buy. So don't go back to your sales manager and say, gosh, I wish I could have sold that fella. He only had one objection. I wish I could have got over that one objection and I would have been able to sell him. Well, you couldn't get over that one objection because it was his genuine reason not to buy. You hear that genuine reason not to buy? It was like an outright rebuttal. It mightn't have been stated in angry language, but it was a genuine outright rebuttal. Let's see how we can hear those objections because you understand now that we need to hear them in order to take the customer's temperature. If we hear him saying, no money, no time, your responses are too slow and I use another company, then we can say to ourselves, goody, 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 this person is going to buy, I just have to keep going. But if you wait till the end and you only get one objection, you don't know where you stand. So that's why we say you've got to build objections into the sale to see where you do stand. Building objections into the sale is an essential part of all selling. I liken it in this discussion to a graph. If you could picture in your mind the vertical axis on the left of a graph representing the interest level. So all the ups and downs on our graph will show high and low points of interest. Then along the horizontal axis running from the right of that, we'd show time. Now, the time is broken up into, say, six periods and they're equal space. So in your mind's eye or on your piece of paper as you're writing this, you've got your right angle, interest level on the left, your horizontal timeline underneath, and you've divided that into six equal spots across the page. Now, show the interest level going up almost like a bowler hat curve, a few bumps and dips and rises, but essentially it rises to about the third period of time and then gradually fades off. So it looks a bit like a bumpy mountain. Now, have a look at that picture. Most salespeople run along the bottom line going yabbity 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 ning nong ning nong ning nong little opo little opo ning dong talking feature 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 feature. If we're lucky, they're chucking a couple of benefits, but they keep going talk 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 talking the leg off the chair. And at the end of their six periods of time, it might be six minutes or sixty minutes, they stop, look the customer in the eye, and ask something weak like, "So, um, Harry, what do you reckon, mate?" And Harry has gone through the mountain. You see, he's climbed up the mountain during the first period of time, up through the second period of time, up through the third. He's reached a peak of interest at around third period of time and started to climb down the mountain on the other side and lose interest and cool down so that at point six, he's back off the mountain of interest and his interest is at an all-time low like it was at the beginning. That's the point where Dum Dum asked the question, what do you reckon, Harry? And Harry cannot do anything else but say, well, I just don't know that we've got the money for that. And that's all we can get out of him because we've shot our bolt, we've used up all our ammo, we've got nothing else to say. So I suggest that you ask the customer some questions during the mountain climb to see how far up the mountain he is. 
Hold that thought while I interpose an editorial comment. We're coming up to a segment where I demonstrate the SASHMAC formula using a set of tapes as the model. At this point, we had a little debate. Should we in fact change the word tapes to CDs and re-record it? And Andrew, the engineer here at Full Bench Audio Post, one of the greatest engineers in the world, I might add, said to me, well, you know... In a couple of years' time, people will be able to stick their fingernail in the wall and download the whole recording onto their DNA, so you're going to re-record it again and again and again every time there's a technological change? I said, fair enough, we'll leave it at tapes then. He said, sure, and just tell all the techno snobs that it's just a product. could be anything, a bunch of bananas or whatever. I thought that wasn't a bad comment coming from one of the greatest techno snobs I know, so here it is. Just regard this as a product and forget about the fact that it's old technology, okay? So you might go... This is a terrific tape program. It's got six cassettes in it. By the way, do you listen to tapes much? I hear the guy says, oh, not that often. Good. We've done a little bit of presenting. It wasn't that good, but at least we found out where his interest level is at period one. Now we're going to sashmack. We're going to smile, agree, show more advantages, and close again. By agree, I don't mean say... Yeah, that's a good idea. You shouldn't listen to tapes much. No, I mean, just be agreeable. So he says, no, I don't listen to tapes much. We say, I understand. See, that's being agreeable. Smile. Agree or be agreeable. Show more advantages and close again. So in our second time period here, we're going to show more advantages. One of the good things about listening to tapes, of course, Harry, is that you can do it in the car as you're driving backwards and forwards to work, so it doesn't take up a lot of time. You're also getting good input instead of listening to the radio with bad news. You're preparing yourself to come to the day ready to listen and ready to respond to your customers in a positive way. Tell me, would this be the sort of thing you would play just for yourself or would you share it among the sales team? Now he responds by saying, uh, I don't know, I, I'm, they should buy their own. I, I'm sick of supporting my salespeople to tell you the truth. They should invest in it. It's their life. Now we found that his interest is a little higher. A second ago, he wasn't listening to tapes, was he? But now he would say that salespeople should listen to the tapes, but they should buy them. Now I've found that he's higher up the mountain than that he was. What I want to do is catch him at the peak of the mountain, and when he's at the highest point of interest... Ask him the final closing question. So far, I've heard two negative responses. And the second time, I'm now smiling, agreeing, show more advantage than closing again. I sashmack him once more. I say, yeah, yeah, a lot of managers feel like that. See, I'm not saying anything. I'm just making some quiet, little, agreeable, nonchalant kind of noise that said, yes, Harry, I hear you. Uh, I'm going to go on and show you some more. Say he asked me a question at that point. Say he said, yeah, well... Are these tapes really good value for money? I mean, some tapes you buy are just a couple of minutes on each side and some of them are the same things both sides. I don't like tapes for that reason, right? So he's made a negative statement. I might say, that's a really good question. I'm just coming to that. But don't answer his question straight away. See, just because he asks a question doesn't mean to say he has the right to control the conversation. Remember back when we were talking about selling isn't telling? We've got to give a little answer and then ask him a question. Or tell a little bit more and give him a question. So in this case, I'm going to put him off altogether. If he thinks that's a really genuine problem, he'll raise it again. I'll leave it to him. And it's not like I'm putting him off forever. It's not like I'm ignoring him. Capital I, I'm just ignoring him small eyes. I say, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Look, I'm just coming to that. Let me show you how the tapes are packaged. 
you can clearly see that the tapes are packaged A and B so that you can see the name very clearly and they're done white on black so it's easy to see in the dark under the dull light of your car light if you happen to be stopped at a stoplight want to turn them over you can quickly do that or find your favourite tape in a hurry now, that's important tell me would you be listening to the tapes in the car I asked you that already or would you set aside some time to study the tapes in your library or your study at home See, haven't they done anything about whether or not the tapes are the same length both sides? If he really wants to know that, he'll raise the question again. Here's his opportunity. Do you know what he says? He says, yeah, uh, no, I, I, uh, I'd listen to him in the car, probably. Oh, I, might, I might listen to him when I go to bed. Um, I've actually got him at a point now where his interest is raised to the highest point I've heard so far. I might try a little close on him. And we'll come to closing in a moment. But that's a genuine buying sign. We might make another part of the presentation, ask him another closing question and hear him say something like, well, yeah, getting back to this uh, length of the tapes, how long are they on each side? Because uh, I wouldn't want to buy anything that wasn't good value for money. Now he's telling me he wants to buy it. So I might answer this question right now and say, well, yes, you asked me that before and I'm sorry I didn't address that. Let me say that the tapes vary in length. Some of them are 60 minutes for the two sides. That's 30 each side. Some of them are 40, 20 each side. But roughly the average is around 25 minutes. And we designed them that way so that they'd be easy to listen to and packageable in, in bite-sized pieces. Does it sound about the right length for you, Harry? He says, yeah. Yeah, it does, actually. Yeah, it's not bad. Hmm. You see, he really didn't want to know the answer to the question. Who gives a darn, really, whether they're 27 minutes or 33.7 minutes long? Only the poor bloke outside the window right now trying to work out how long this side will be compared with the other side that we already recorded. No, it's uh, just not an important issue. It's something that lets him say, hello, I'm here. I do take an interest in what you're saying, and it gives us an opportunity to gauge his interest, so we need to let him ask the question. When he asks that question, we could pretty well come up with a response and then follow it through by saying, so Harry, given that the tapes are all a reasonable length and they're easy to find, they're easy to listen to, recorded in high-quality stereo, is it the kind of program you would purchase for yourself, or should we add a copy for each of your three salespeople? He says, uh, no, look, tell you what, put us down for four and I'll uh, take it out of their pay over the next three months. We say, good, here's the order form, press hard, make three copies, and we send the tapes around and we follow him up. You see, it's a simple process. How did I know to close him then? Well, simple. I saw that he was well up the mountain of interest. And how did I find that out? I asked him questions. And how did it not enter into a fight every time he asked me a question? Simply because I smiled, agreed, showed more advantages and closed again. Say things like, I can understand your point of view. That's how a lot of people feel at first, Harry. Well, before I answer that, can I show you this? Well, that's a good point. I'm going to cover that. Keep it in mind. And if I don't, remind me again in a couple of minutes. <laughs> that sounds like a real put-off. Believe it or not, it is. And it really works. If he's really concerned, then he'll repeat it. See, I want to tease him and test him so that if he's got three genuine reasons for not buying, the same one, remember, repeated A, A plus and A plus plus, I'll ask him to repeat it again. If I hear it once more, see, remind me again in a couple of minutes and he says it, I'll test it. I'll see if it's a real objection. So here is the final way to test that real objection. It's called the what-if formula. When the customer objects more than once on the same subject, they've gone A and A+, plus, or if they ask a question out of ignorance or out of a misunderstanding, 
then the Sashmac formula just sounds silly. If you've heard the same objection twice now, you wouldn't say, hmm, I understand how you feel, or hmm, that's a good point, I'm going to cover that, keep it in mind, and if I don't, remind me again in a couple of minutes, because he's already reminded you in a couple of minutes, this is his or her second time round. So don't use the Sashmac formula again, use the what-if formula. Only when you've heard the objection twice or three times. You want to make sure it's the real objection. And you want to make sure that this is a genuine reason for not buying now. And if you can, you want to break it down and make it into a nothing objection. You've got to go down with the national anthem playing and the ship's flag flying high and the choir singing, blessed be the tie that binds. You don't want to just say, <laughs> pack your tent and steal away in the middle of the night without having a go, do you? So you get out a pen and write on a piece of paper. You W, write it down. Then you, A, ask if there's anything else. And then, T, take your time. And then say, if I can do something or point out something or prove something or correct that point of view, will you go ahead? That's basically what you do with the if. Let's go through it a bit slower. The person says, no, I reckon that the guys just wouldn't listen to these tapes unless they pay for them themselves. You need to write it down. You say, okay, guys need to invest or won't listen. Hmm. Dot the page, grimace a bit. This is a bit of a pantomime, actually. Now you ask if there's anything else. You say, hmm. Now, apart from that, is there anything else? He says, oh, no, no, I suppose it's all. I just... You know, want to know if the tape's guaranteed, that's all. You know, if we bust them, can we replace them? Mm-hmm. Write that down. Want guarantee. Good. Now, we're still grimacing a bit, puff out of our nose, because it's all a piece of cake for us, but we don't want to come on too strong. We just sort of a, hmm, tap the pen a couple of times, suck the teeth, see with tea, taking our time. And make it look like we're really thinking up this huge response. I mean, because he's such a baby, isn't he? He comes up with this weak set of questions that every other Dick, Tom and Harriet has already come up with. But we don't want to look like we're a smarty pants and say, oh, that old furphy, toss me up something new, not an old acorn. Here, here's the answer to that. You're so stupid and dumb. Couldn't you think of anything better than that? No, we pay the person the credence of letting them think that they're the first person who's ever thought of these stupid responses they come up with. So we say, hmm... If I can show you some testimonials of people that have found that the salespeople valued the tapes when they were given to them as awards or presented them to them as a special gift and listened to them and benefited from them and increased sales from them, would you then consider investing in them for your staff? Now, he'll come back with a bit of bluster probably and say, oh, like who, for instance? Okay, well, I could list those people for you, but I suppose the only point in doing that is if you feel as though the tapes would have long-lasting value. So if I can show you those and we can answer all your questions, especially about the guarantee, will you place an order for four sets? A bit more bluster, a bit more redness in the face. You say, yeah, 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 all right. Well, you know, yeah, probably. Uh, what's this, a heavy clothes or something? And you'll both laugh and you'll say, well, okay. Uh, Smith Brothers use these tapes and therefore salespeople uh, listen to them every day in the car and sales increased. Uh, Brown Brothers use these tapes and uh, their wheel sales improved and um, the Green Sisters 
certainly listen to these tapes in their sales meetings and the Green Sisters have done much better in their wedding frocks than they've ever done before and they always say, here, look at this testimonial from Green Sisters, for example. Uh, Colin, your tapes were terrific and our salespeople have never looked better. Does that answer your question, Harry? He said, yeah, yeah. He'll say, put me down for four then. Can I have time payment? He said, yes. You pay for them today, I'll give them to you tomorrow. How's that? It's simple, isn't it, really? Sashmac and what if. The whole process, though, isn't the tricky bits. It isn't the pantomime, as I said. It's not really being a show person. It probably won't get that far. The main difficulty that people face in selling is believing that objections are scary, the believing that negative statements are real negative statements, and then people get into fights with their customer. They go to war with the customer. They feel as though the customer interface is a battleground where you've got to out-kick them out, box them out, punch them out, shoot them out, atomic bomb them. No, if you build objections into the sale, hear them coming out, don't respond to them too negatively, you'll find that it's a very straightforward process to get to the closing question. So, revise in your mind that we need to listen instead of tell. We need to make sure we're sitting in front of a qualified prospect or customer. We need to use lots of benefits and we need to hear those objections so that we move comfortably through to closing. Sam Walton was the founder of the fabulous Walmart chain of emporiums across the United States. He was, when he was alive, the richest man in the US and one of the richest in the world. A very humble man, still drove round in an old pickup truck with his two hunting dogs in the back and invited the staff, hundreds of them, thousands of them, to an annual picnic in his little country town. He was an ordinary sort of chap in his own estimations, but he had some extraordinary views. He based his empire on this simple principle that he learned once, which was buy it low, stack it high and sell it cheap. One thing in his autobiography stuck out in my mind. He said, to me, it always seemed like a customer was a customer and you ought to try to sell them what you could. Sam Walton believed that selling was a service and that when you closed somebody or asked them to buy, you were doing them the ultimate service in retail. The same applies in any walk of life in commerce. You must close the sale. Before we start, I wonder if I asked you a quiz question and asked you to define closing, what you would say. Well, think about it for a couple of seconds. What is a close? Probably it flashed into your mind that a close is getting the order or making the sale. And you were technically correct if you thought that. Closing in its narrowest sense means to bring things to a complete conclusion. But in sales, I like to think of closing as something you do when it's not near the end. Think of closing as agreeing about what happens next or inviting people to agree and comply with your line of thinking or presentation. Ultimately, it's also an invitation to buy, but those two other definitions will help you a lot if you think about closing as agreeing about what happens next or an invitation to agree or comply. If that's true, you can see that you can use closing all the way through your presentation. Remember when I first introduced the idea of selling isn't telling in that presentation, we talked about asking questions to save time. Well, some of those were closing questions, like, am I telling you the kind of thing you want to know? When we talked about qualifying questions, we asked a question like, I guess you want to get this installed by Christmas. See, that's an invitation to agree or comply very early in the presentation. If you asked any old insurance salesperson, 
they'd tell you that selling is as simple as ABC. ABC, always be closing. In the old days, they talked about leading prospects down a positive path, inviting them to agree with you and say yes. The idea was to get the customer practising saying yes enough times until they got the feeling that it was okay to say yes, and finally when you slipped them the hard closing question, they just said yes because they were comfortable with the word, and then signed the order pad. Well, that's a bit old-fashioned these days, and I think it's pretty transparent. Today's customer is much more inquiring and much more discerning and doesn't want to just say yes, they want to ask questions and make some negative statements. That's part of the process. I remember when we were just married, we had a little tiny baby, and we were living in a rented house. There was a knock at the door about eight o'clock one rainy night and two young people were standing outside with a briefcase. And the young fellow said, uh, Mr Pierce? I said, yes. He said, you've been selected in this neighbourhood as one of the people we should show our encyclopaedia program to. Can I come in and show it to you? Well, I'd never seen an encyclopaedia up close and I was a student at the time and loved books. So I said, sure, come on in and show me. He said, Mr Pierce, I'll make this presentation to you on one condition that every time I ask you a question, you say yes or no. It was a weird presentation because it was framed in a way that I felt compelled to say yes every, every time he asked me the question. He asked me, can you see yourself using these books yourself? I said, yes. He said, can you see your wife enjoying reading these books and looking things up in the, in the homemaker section? Because he'd already established that she liked homemaking. I said, yes. He said, can you see little Timmy growing up and wanting to read these books and learn things at school and see yourself sitting down alongside him, helping him learn? I said, yes. He must have asked me a thousand questions to which the answer was yes. And I could see now that the idea of the sales presentation was to psych me up and get me rehearsing saying yes so that when he said, would you like to place an order for them, I was supposed to say yes. But when he asked me that question... I said, well, no. <laughs> and he looked crestfallen and he said, why have not? And I said, well, you've asked me all these other questions, but the one you didn't ask me was whether I had any money. And he said, um, ub, ub, ub. And I said, look, that $7 a week that you're talking about is our meat bill. I couldn't afford to buy meat and some vegetables. He looked like a vegetable at that time and packed his bag and stole away in the middle of the night. The presentation was a bit of a duck, if you ask me, because it was based on the old-fashioned principle of getting the poor dumb customer to say yes enough times, but this poor dumb customer wasn't so dumb. No, I'm not meaning that we should ask questions to which the answer should always be yes. That's too transparent, as we said. Now, selling is as simple as ABC. You've got to ask intelligent closing questions which give you an opportunity to see whether the customer is agreeing or complying with your line of thought. So, as I said, we'd ask a question like, am I telling you the kind of thing you want to know? Can you see yourself using something like this? And expect more than a yes or no answer. If they say yes, you, say, you might say, well, how? You might say, how do you like what you've heard so far? And they'll say, it's all right. You might say, what has appealed to you most so far? And you might say in getting one of these, I guess you'd want it installed by Christmas or the kid's birthday or by the time the boss comes back from overseas, wouldn't you? They might say yes. We'd say, what time in the calendar seems to stick in your mind the most? See, they're just asking questions for agreement or compliance. You can see that everything we've been doing in these first five tapes you've been listening to has been encouraging you to think of the sales presentation as one big close from beginning to end, all made up of little closing situations. So you can see that closing is important to the whole process, not just the end. So firstly, ABC, always be closing in little ways. And 
Now, I want you to be a bit more scientific about your presentation. Build specific closing questions into your presentation. Look for them. They should be the big highlight opportunities so that you know at a certain point you'll definitely be asking a closing question by now. These are spaced carefully to take the prospect's temperature and to see how close you're getting to the order. Let's relate back to the previous program about handling objections. You remember I got you to draw a chart in your mind's eye that looked a bit like a mountain with a timeline along the bottom of it and heights of interest on the side. This outlined the prospect's interest level during the time of a presentation. And in that program, we talked about how it was important to hear objections, otherwise we wouldn't know where we stood. It's better than rabbiting on till the end of the presentation, because by that time, the interest has died and it's all over. We said it was like getting a feedback readout on how the prospect was thinking. Radio transmissions from his trek up the mountain of interest. Do you recall how we said the objection arose? It was by coming to the end of an advantages or benefit-rich piece of language and then asking a closing question. A very carefully planned presentation has those powerful special closing opportunities built in. Many direct sales companies use that technique for their home visit salespeople and for calling people on the telephone. At close number one, they might build in this kind of question. Going back to those encyclopedia folks, if they were going to do it better, they would say something like, it's the kind of reading advantage we want young Tim to have, Colin, before he even starts school, isn't it? By the way, if you were to invest in something like this, do you normally do it with cash or are you a terms person? Now that's a close built in to the presentation, which comes just after a whole bunch of benefit-rich language and now the customer has an opportunity to say, well, I haven't decided yet, or the customer has an opportunity to say, oh no, we're terms people, or how much is it? You see, it's an, a way of gauging interest. In program five, we saw that the customer would at that time buy or object. They'd say, oh no, terms, how much are they? I want to buy some. I've always been thinking about this. Or you've convinced me. The salesperson could sash make if they get an objection, smile, agree, show more value or advantages, and close again a few minutes later. And close number two would be built into the presentation. They'd say to themselves, right, we have to go up the track now to close number two. You're probably wondering what kind of investment this requires, Colin. We're really talking about small change here. You can have the whole 12-volume starter library and the four-volume medical reference and the 30-volume encyclopedia for $11 a week or $18.59 cash. Would the cash or the weekly terms be better for you? See, there's your whole closing statement, all built into one point in time, and you know you're supposed to ask it at about that level of interest. Let's say now the customer asks for a bit of time to decide and the salesperson just sash-macks again, and then you come up with the resultant close. You say something like, well, children love getting gifts, don't they? The gift plates that come with the books can be used as mementos to the children just to show how much you value their education. Now, when we address the books to the kids, should we address them to you or should we put Timmy's name on the box? Now, on each occasion, I can either object or buy. Now, the strategist who designs that presentation knows just how to build in the right words at the right time to evoke a buying response. Your presentation ought to be structured in the same kind of way. You might say, well, I don't sell books door to door. I don't sell cars. I don't sell the sort of things where you do a step-by-step -step presentation. Well, that's your fault. You ought to build it into a step-by-step -step presentation. The steps might only have one or two sentences in them before you get to your closing question, but you ought to build them in. You list your benefits, and at the end of your benefit statements, 
ask a closing question. Use the statement question technique. So always be closing with little closes and at structured places with special closes. I'd say you shouldn't ever state a benefit without asking if it applies or appeals to the person you've explained it to. Now the third consideration is that you need to close whenever you see a buying sign. What's a buying sign? Well, think about this. Look at that, there's a customer sniffing and admiring the bunch of red roses, playing with the ribbon and reading the little gift card. Salesperson comes over and says, beautiful, aren't they? Little closing question, asking for agreement. And the customer says, hmm, my wife loves red roses. Sharp as a tack, the salesperson needs to look over and say, why don't I wrap a dozen and put the nice ribbon and include a card on them for you to take home? It'd be a nice surprise. What do you think? Well, that's pretty obvious, you say. But I wonder how many florists actually do that. You know, most florists would say, yes, I love them too. Most florists would say, hmm, smell beautiful. Most florists would say, hmm, don't know how they get them to grow like that. Wish I could. Instead of just saying simply, why don't I wrap a dozen and put a ribbon and card on them and you can give someone a nice surprise? That's a little buying sign response. It was obvious, you say. Surely most salespeople aren't that thick. Ah, oh, ha, ha. Go a little shopping and find out for yourself. And I hope <laughs> nobody shops you and finds this out. Certainly after listening to these tapes, you won't let a buying sign go by, will you? I was in a car yard the other day. I was falling passionately in love with this beautiful, sleek, silver thing. It was sitting there with shiny black tyres and it's... Beautiful trim. I'd opened and shut the door several times, sat in it, gone vroom vroom with the steering wheel. Now I was standing outside it, leaning against the front fender. Mr Stupid came up and said, G'day. I said, G'day. Boy, this is a great car. suppose it's a bit out of my price range. What could you give me as a trade-in on my little uh, mickle rabbit out there? He looked out the window and he said, Ah, mickle rabbits. Mickle rabbits not much good these days, mate. People, uh, people don't like those. I mean, the Royal Automobile Association rubbished them about seven or eight years ago when they first came out. Uh, no, my, my brother-in-law had one of those, and I thought, wait a minute, where's this going? I thought it started out as uh, the classic free insults here kind of clothes where the guy rubbishes your car to make the new one sound all the more wonderful and to let you know that you're not going to get much of a trade-in. But no, he just rabbited on and on and on about my Rabbit car, and I suppose he thought that he was doing me a great favour by passing the time of day with me. He missed completely the opportunity to ask me, did I see myself driving one of those? Uh, did I go on long journeys? Is it the sort of car I wanted to give myself as a reward? Missed the whole lot. All the buying signs were there, but he didn't see them. What a buffhead. You see, whenever a customer or a prospect makes a stroking or a positive sign about your product or service, that's the time to ask a closing question. Person says, hmm, boy, this is a great keyboard. I must say the average keyboard doesn't feel like this. It's got a great touch. See, that's a gesture that says, it's mine, I want it. A buying sign is any physical or verbal indication that the prospect likes the product so much they behave in an owning way. That's why I never take the kids with me to buy a new stereo, a new TV, or a new car, or even a new house. 
on the way to the house, I said to the kids, now no noise when we go in the door. You walk in with your hands behind your back and your mouths shut. I don't want anybody saying anything. We were no sooner in the door than Samuel squeals, it's got a circular stairwell. And Samuel says, great, we could ride down there on our pillows. And when they got to the bottom, they saw the indoor pool. And they're screaming through the window, it's got a pool and it's inside. Oh, Dad, we got to get this house. I was at an absolute loss to know what to do with myself. I was in the hands of a very capable salesperson who looked at me, raised her eyebrows as if to say, you're going to buy this house, buddy, whether you like it or not. The kids have already moved in. And try as I would to get out of buying that house, she had me right where she wanted me because she'd listened to the kids' verbal buying signs. She'd listened to my wife's verbal buying signs. And to tell you the truth, she got a few out of me. She asked me if I liked the view. I said, it's amazing. Never seen a view like it. She heard me saying, how come they don't want the price for it that they first advertised it for? She listened for the verbal buying signs. Within 24 hours, we'd signed the contract. Learning to observe buying signs is so simple, I just can't understand how most salespeople miss them. You don't have to be that clever. The instant you see one, you should ask a closing question because you're somewhere near the mountain peak of interest. If you're really good at this, you learn then to read the answers to the closing question and know what to do with the last vital bit of telling, whether you should tell some more or whether you should ask another closing question towards, well, shall we go ahead? Sadly, most salespeople talk so much, they spend five minutes selling the product and 25 minutes buying it back because they don't know how or when to close. That's pretty stupid, isn't it? Seeing the company's already paid for the product, there's no point in you buying it back off the customer, is there? So reviewing where we've come so far, you close always, always be closing in small and subtle ways. Secondly, you close at programmed times. You work out three good, strong, stiff closes you can drop in at the right time. And then you have a bunch of closes ready to use when you see a buying signal. You could throw in one of your good, stiff, pre-programmed closes, or you could just have a couple of extras. You need to practice these and have them ready so that you're not stumbling around at the last minute. But don't just think of closing as something you do at the end after you've done all your telling. I think we've established that pretty strongly, haven't we? You have to think of your sales presentation as potentially ending at any moment. So you keep closing and sooner or later one of these closes really does end up being the final close. But your final close could come during the qualifying period. It could come after handling an objection and it could come out of the blue when the customer appears ready. The only surefire way to know when to close is to practice closing early and often. The earlier you close in your presentation, the shorter it will be and the more opportunity you'll have to get the objections out or to get an order and to go home early. It's something to underline in your notes. Practice closing early and often. Now let's talk about the fear of closing. There's no doubt that most people find closing the hardest thing about sales. Either that or working out how to handle objections without starting a war. When you're in front of a customer, try to remember this. The worst thing you'll ever hear is the word no. Let me just say it for you. You ready? No. Now, check yourself all over. Did your arm or your leg drop off? Hope not if you're driving the car. Did your clothes turn invisible so that we can see your underwear? <laughs> I doubt it. You have to learn that nothing bad happens when the customer says, no, here, I'll say it again. No, 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 no. Nothing bad happened to you, did it? Honestly, you have to hear the word no more times than you hear the word yes, because in most cases, more people don't want to buy your product than actually do want to buy your product. 
Have you noticed that? So you have to expect no's as part of the business. They're as high as 10 to 1 in some businesses. I once kept a record and found that I heard the word no four times more than I heard the word yes. I began to see that no's were actually paying for the yeses. And in fact, the more no's I opened myself up to, the more yeses I'd hear. It took the fear out of closing for me. I expected the word no, I expected the word yes, but it didn't really bother me which one I heard. I knew it was part of the mathematical game I was playing. If you don't close, you don't deserve to hear the word yes at all, and you probably won't. So let's see a few of the most common closes. Most common closes are what I call clinches, the either or or the which one close, the direct close and the minor choice close. I only tell you these because you need some kind of closing as your basic sales toolkit. A lot of people will teach you things like the Benjamin Franklin close or the balance sheet close or the Mr McAdoo close. Heard of the Mr McAdoo close? When the customer's in your business or you're in his business, uh, you just say, look, I know we could get that for you. Gosh, I don't know whether we can. I think it's the last one. I've got a feeling it was sold this morning and it was ordered by our Melbourne store. Let me just ring Mr McAdoo and ask him. So you go behind the counter and you play pretend on the telephone and you say, yes, well, you could. Mm, Really? If you could, oh, look, that'd be great. I've got a customer here. Yes, I'm sure they want to buy it. You poke your head around the corner and you say, do you really want to buy it? Because I can get Mr McAdoo to hold the order. The person says in desperation, oh, please. So you go back and you say to pretend, Mr McAdoo, uh, yes, well, look, they do want to buy it. Yes, I can get an order today. Put your head around the corner again. You say, you have your cash on you? The person says, yes, 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 I do. Now you poke your head back a corner and you pretend to be Mr McAdoo's friend again and you say, yeah, yeah, they're ready to take it. Well, okay. I'm sorry about your customer, but this one is ready to go now. You hang it up and you come back and you say, wow, isn't that a relief? Mr McAdoo says you can have it. Now, that's just pure chicanery and daylight robbery. There's no such person as Mr McAdoo, of course, and you weren't on the telephone. Now, all those sort of closes need to be outlawed. And if you find somebody doing that, well, freely, as far as I'm concerned, dob them in. It's just being plain outright crooked. It's not sales technique at all. It's stealing. At this point, I need to say, too, that there's not much point in learning some of these more complicated sales uh, techniques or closing techniques if you're dealing in a business with considered purchases where somebody has to chew over or mull over the sale process, where they've got to go away and read your report or read your documentation. In a considered purchase, recent studies have shown that the more often you close, the less likely you are to get the order. But in smaller items where people can make impulse purchases or where they can make purchases that only take a little bit of consideration, the more times you close, the more likely you are to get the sale. So you have to weigh that up for yourself. Certainly, this basic toolkit of closing questions will stand you in good stead. A clincher question is a simple question which asks for agreement. A person holds up an orchid and a ribbon and they say to you, they look great together, don't they? The customer says, yeah, they're just what I wanted. Well, let's get them packaged. Can I have your credit card number, please? That's a simple agreement kind of closing question. They're the don't they, doesn't it, haven't you, won't they, can't you, isn't it kind of clincher questions. They clinch the kind of thought process that's going on at the time. They're the questions you ought to have falling off your tongue really comfortably, aren't they? See, there's one. Clinches could be used anywhere and at any time. When the customer answers in the affirmative, you go ahead and get the money. Now, the next close is the either-or close. 
this one has become a standard part of my conversation. The idea of the either-or close is to present the prospect with two positive alternatives to which the answer is either yes or yes. Sometimes I call this the double yes question. It goes like this. Here's the salesperson saying, the automatic screensaver is a great idea, isn't it? Customer says, yeah. I can't get over how good that keyboard felt when I first touched it. Salesperson now asks an either-or close. They say, well, shall I package it up for you to take now or courier it out tomorrow? See, that's a yes-yes option. The question wasn't, well, shall I package it up for you now or um, will you think about it for a while? No, it was two yeses. You're going to take it now. You're going to get it tomorrow. You wouldn't want to ask a question with a yes-no answer because the no answer is too easy an option for people. Nobody likes to buy things. You see, we have to establish that. Nobody likes to come to the point of purchase. We all like to keep our money and not take any risks. So sometimes we need the encouragement of somebody confidently asking us two yes questions. One thing I've noticed in all the seminars I take, whenever I ask people to role play this a bit, most people don't seem to be able to finish two yes questions. They do it like this. Well, shall I package it up for you to take now or... And the or seems to go on for ages. Do you like what you're seeing or... And the customer is supposed to come in and give an answer to a question that hasn't even been asked properly. You hear people saying, well, the yellow one looks really good and that'd be terrific in the child's bedroom. Or do you think the blue one would be better for... Make sure you finish the question with a two yes option that's complete in itself. Now we'll have a look at the direct close. The direct close shouldn't sound like this, by the way. Okay, do you want it? Right, we'll sign here and we'll wrap it. Hmm, there's only one left. We've got plenty of people after it, so make up your mind. You're going to take it or not? Now that's not the direct close. That's a direct hit with a 200-pound cannonball close. There's no need to be timid about your closing, but you shouldn't be oafish about it either. You use a direct close when everything seems right, when the buying signs are clear, when the interest level is at its peak, and the customer has said yes and made a few good strong buying signs already. Got that? Use a direct close when the climate's right. So the salesperson says, does that make you feel a bit more relaxed about our backup service? Customer says, yeah, yeah, I, I was only worried about what I'd read in the paper that day. The salesperson says, well, in that case, if you make out your deposit cheque to Green Grass Incorporated, I'll fill in the paperwork. What's your middle initial, please? See, that's a direct close. Everything's been answered. The questions are all out. They've all been dealt with. We've had a few buying signs. And now the person seems to be content. We say, does that make you feel more relaxed about the backup service? They say, yes, well, go ahead and make a direct close and get the order. Here's a few tips about using direct closing that'll come in handy for all the closing questions you ask. Firstly, use a confident, quiet manner. Don't get the jitters. It's expected. The person's come out to buy or invited you over to sell them something. So use a confident, quiet manner. Look like you're in control, because basically you are. And don't fidget around and look like you're going to wet yourself when you ask the closing question. Look the person in the eye. Be quiet. Just wait. Don't move. Look relaxed. Have your pen ready and let the prospect think. There's an old adage that says the first person to speak up buys the product. And as I said, since your company already bought it once, there's no need for you to go and buy it back again for them. You could wait a while. The customer says, 
Mm, I think that answers most of my questions. Thanks a lot. Looking like they're going, we say, why don't we write the finance application now? You can have it delivered tomorrow. What's your area code? Now the salesperson bites their lip. A couple of seconds go by. The salesperson looks a bit fidgety in the eyes and twiddles their pen because the customer isn't answering straight away. They start to shift on their feet and finally the salesperson cracks and says, oh, you could think about it and phone your details in when you're ready. And the customer says, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll I'll think about it. Thanks all the same. You see, that was only about five or six seconds. If you can't wait that long, you're not going to last much longer in sales. While you were fidgeting around on your feet like that, twiddling your pen and getting nervous and biting your lip, the customer was actually saying to himself, gosh, I suppose I should get it. How, how would I pay for it, though? Hmm. Got my savings in a 30-day account, so I can't get the money out now. How can I get him to give me a little bit longer to pay? Hmm. Then the salesperson interrupted at that point, and the customer thought to himself, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll phone him next month when the money's available. Silly salesperson. The salesperson needs to learn to shut up. Let's do it again. Customer says, yeah, I think that answers most of my questions. Yeah, thanks a lot. Now the customer looks like they're going to leave. The salesperson says, why don't we write the finance application now? You can have it delivered tomorrow. What's your area code? Now the salesperson is quiet, just waits, doesn't move, looks relaxed, has the pen ready, and lets the prospect think. And the prospect thinks, gosh, no, I don't want to go on finance. I've actually got the cash, except it's in a 30-day account. Can't get the money out. How can they get him to give me a longer time to pay? So he thinks all that through. The salesperson's just quietly waiting. It's not a staring match. It's only going on about 15 seconds. And the customer then says, well, look, if you could make this a 30-day account instead, you've got a deal. That's a buying sign. So the salesperson now says, hey, that shouldn't be a problem. Let's fill out the credit application for 30 days. Can I have your postcode, please? Now, here's one other close. And this one is called the minor choice close. You use this when you feel that the customer would be a little shocked if you came right out and bonged him on the nose with the direct close. Salesperson says, would you like us to deliver the mower or will it fit in the back of your car? Customer says, well, if it'll fit in the back of the car, I'll take it home. That's an indirect close. It wasn't saying, will you buy it? It's saying, would you like us to deliver it or where shall we fit it? It's a question just short of a direct close. We've taken the prospect's temperature as well as got him to answer yes. More importantly, we've got the prospect agreeing in principle to owning the product. Now all you have to do is ask the direct close to get him to put his name on the line which is dotted. Press hard, make three copies. There are squillions of other closers, as I've said, that go by all sorts of fancy names, but the four I've given you are the building blocks for all good selling. So in closing this tape, I want to summarise the things we've done so far. I like to see selling as being like walking a tightrope. It's a balance between asking and telling, but keeping your eye on the goal of reaching the other end of the rope, that's a happy customer at a long-term customer relationship. You only get to the goal if you keep your presentation balanced. We've seen that the selling process begins with you and your own personal attitude, your own set of belief systems about how motivated you can be long term. It also begins with understanding what sort of person we have coming towards us. The customer, are they that choleric, powerful type, needing short, direct answers and explanations? Are they the romantic, sanguine type that likes all the colour and the fun? Are they the people who need reassurance on safety and 
quality relationship, but they're the kind of person who needs more assurance about technical details and research and reliability. Once we've sussed that out, we need to understand that it's telling in the minor degree and listening in the major degree. Selling isn't telling. When we qualify people, we find out whether they really are a prospect before we go ahead. And when we do do our telling, we do it in benefit-rich, customer-focused language. And we handle the people's objections, few though they'll be at this end because we've done so well in our qualifying. We learn to smile, be agreeable, show more value, and most objections will evaporate. Then we've seen on this tape, learning to close for the order in a variety of ways. Always be closing. Close in structured times and have a few up our sleeve for buying sign opportunities. And to underline this program, we've seen that this whole sales process will help us to lead better, to listen better, to learn better and to sell better. Well, I wish someone had instilled that into me when I started selling decades ago. I would have lost less friends and made more money, I'm sure. Look, speaking about starting out in sales, if you're a member of Colin Pierce Academy and you're starting a new salesperson, put them through the Fast Start to Sales course so they don't fall down the same rabbit holes that I did. And if you're not a member yet, go to colinpierceacademy.com and subscribe so you can access that course and loads of others. You'll get a lot of new friends from amongst the other members and we'll get up close and personal in the twice-monthly members-only coaching calls. That's colinpierceacademy.com. You've been listening to Be So Good with Colin Pierce. For more episodes, check the playlist at colinpierce.com slash podcast. And don't forget to drop a review in the iTunes listing.